Herbert Hoover's name was mud. By 1930, the Great Depression was in full swing. Fortunes had been lost, savings had been wiped out, and 4 million Americans were unemployed, a rate of nearly 9%. President Hoover was widely perceived as being tone-deaf to both the gravity of the economic catastrophe and the suffering of average Americans. On the day after the stock market crash known as Black Tuesday, Hoover said, The fundamental business of the country, that is, production and distribution of commodities, is on a sound and prosperous basis. Maybe so, Herbert. But before long, there would be a lot fewer people to sell commodities to. He did take steps immediately after the crash, asking business leaders to not reduce wages and convincing railroads and public utilities to increase spending on infrastructure. He added $100 million in farm subsidies. But these steps were all top-down. Coming from a millionaire president who had staffed his cabinet with wealthy businessmen, the initial reactions to the Depression appeared to be all about business. It looked like the president only saw the Depression through the lens of commerce. Hoover believed that the government should not intervene in the economy and that the best way to stave off economic disaster was to strengthen companies and banks. He also thought that government relief for the unemployed would create a population dependent upon the dole, unwilling to work. He left the problem of -of out-of-work Americans to local governments and private charities. For a candidate who had campaigned for president two years earlier on the slogan, a chicken in every pot and a car in every backyard, Hoover was finding way too many of his words coming back to haunt him. Here's the thing. Herbert Hoover had a reputation as the world's Mr. Fix-It. He had saved Europe from starvation after World War I, and when the Mississippi River flooded in 1927, the governors of the states along the river had begged President Calvin Coolidge to put Hoover in charge of flood relief, even though he was just the Secretary of Commerce. If you were in big trouble, Hoover was the guy you went to. And he took care of it. But not this time. He had faith in the principles of market forces and an economy free of governmental interference. Like most people at the time, he didn't think the economic calamity was going to last. And worst of all, he seemed to have no compassion for the homeless, the starving, and the people who had lost all hope. A lot of things got named for Herbert Hoover during the Depression. Hoovervilles were the shanty towns built on the outskirts of cities where homeless, unemployed men and their families lived. There was a big one right in New York's Central Park. The nation's largest Hooverville in St. Louis had an unofficial mayor and built its own churches and other institutions. There were also Hoover blankets, sheets of old newspaper used as blankets, Hoover flags, empty pockets turned out, Hoover leather, cardboard placed in the soles of shoes to cover the holes, and Hoover wagons. Automobiles hooked to teams of horses, their engines removed. There was also, awkwardly enough, Hoover Dam. A dam in the American Southwest had been in the works since the 1890s. Initially planned for flood control and irrigation, the advent of electricity added power generation to the dam's importance. Herbert Hoover, while Secretary of Commerce, met with the states that had an interest in the dam. California, Nevada, Colorado, Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, and Wyoming to try and work out an agreement that would allow the project to go forward. The Colorado River Compact was established in November 1922, and President Coolidge signed the bill authorizing the dam's construction in December 1928, a month after Hoover had been elected the nation's 31st president. Hoover's Secretary of the Interior, Ray Lyman Wilmer, went to Nevada in September 1930 to drive a spike into the desert floor where the dam would be built. Suffering from the blistering heat in a wool suit, Wilbur announced, I have the honor and privilege of giving a name to this new structure. In Black Canyon, 
under the Boulder Canyon Project Act. It shall be called the Hoover Dam. Wilbur wasn't just a sweaty suck-up trying to score points with his boss. Ian Hoover had been friends since college, and the Interior Secretary was likely trying to give his friends something good to put his name on for a change. He defended his choice by pointing out a long-standing tradition of dams being named for presidents, though none had happened during any of those presidents' terms of office. Then he tried another idea, saying that Hoover was the great engineer whose vision and persistence has done so much to make the dam possible. That sounded a little bit like sucking up to the boss. One newspaper man said in response that the great engineer had quickly drained, ditched, and dammed the country. Damn, that was pretty harsh. Maybe it would be best to not name things after Herbert Hoover for a while. Perhaps they should wait until after he got elected to a second term as president. Franklin D. Roosevelt beat Hoover in the 1932 presidential election, winning the White House in a landslide. Damn. Harold Ickes, the new Secretary of the Interior, really didn't like Herbert Hoover and didn't believe his name should be attached to any project of significance. Ickes, in the proud tradition of his predecessor, ranged far and wide for justification to name the dam any way he wanted. He pointed out that dams had indeed been named for presidents, but not while they were in office. No one mentioned that the dam could now be named for ex-President Hoover, since he was a private citizen again. But Ickes had a reputation for being foul-tempered. Iggy's diary revealed his determination to try to nail down for good and all the name Boulder Dam. During his commemoration speech in the desert, he said Boulder Dam five times in 30 seconds. He suggested that if it was going to be named for anyone, it should be Senator Hiram Johnson, who had sponsored the initial legislation to build the dam. Iggy's would have named it after anything, as long as it wasn't Herbert Hoover. President Roosevelt referred to the project as Boulder Dam, but the name never caught on with the public or the press. A famous cartoon was printed showing Ickes ineffectively chipping away at an enormous sign that said Hoover Dam, with Roosevelt trying to help him without success. One other tactic Ickes tried was to say that the name Hoover Dam had never been used in any official documentation of the project. Attorney General Homer Cummings helpfully informed Ickes that Congress had indeed used the name Hoover Dam in five different bills appropriating money for its construction. The official status this conferred to the name Hoover Dam had been noted on the floor of the House of Representatives by Congressman Edward T. Taylor of Colorado on December 12, 1930. Ickes chose to ignore this inconvenient bit of information and stuck to his guns. As far as he was concerned, it was Boulder Dam, Herbert Hoover, be damned. In his memoir, former President Hoover said having his name taken off the dam didn't bother him. After Hoovervilles and Hoover flags, he was probably happy when things in Depression-era America weren't named after him. House Resolution 140 was introduced and passed by the 80th Congress in 1947. The resolution read, in part, as president, Herbert Hoover took an active part in settling the engineering problems and location of the dam in Black Canyon, and noted that the construction contracts were signed under his administration, and when he left office, construction had been pushed to a point where it was more than a year ahead of schedule. On April 30, 1947, President Harry S. Truman signed the resolution and restored the name Hoover Dam. Harold Ickes, it is safe to say, was pretty damn peeved. Despite the question of what great man the dam should be named for, the story of Hoover Dam isn't a typical historical narrative of presidents or economic calamity or major government endeavors. The story of Hoover Dam is about the people who worked on it, risking their lives to build one of the marvels of the modern world. 
It is about the families forced by necessity to live in the desert near the building site under terrible conditions and forced to leave if their men died on the job. One of the best treatments of this tale was the historical novel Ragtown by Kelly Stone Gamble. This book tells the story of Hoover Dam from the ground up in a way that puts the reader right in the shadow of the massive undertaking. Click the link in the show's description to start reading the first three episodes for free. Please consider giving us a good rating on Apple Podcasts and whatever platform you listen on, as well as supporting the show on our Patreon page. There's lots of fun bonus content over there, like how to talk to your pets about history, early access to new episodes, and some incidents where fans of the show take me to task about train wrecks that I haven't talked about and some that I have. It's also a great way to keep the show going. $3 a month or so goes a long way toward keeping the train wrecks on the tracks, and your support means a lot. Go to patreon.com forward slash histories train wrecks, and thank you so much. If you have your own ideas about how to name taxpayer-funded building projects, or think that Herbert Hoover should have been a little more compassionate toward his citizens, you can Twitter to add History's Train. You can Instagram, whatever that is, to History's Train Wrecks. If there's a historical train wreck you'd love to see on the tracks, join the History's Train Wrecks Facebook group. And as always, tell every history nerd you know about us. We definitely need to stick together. On our next episode, it's time to count the presidential votes in the election of 1912, pitting reluctant Republican William Howard Taft against Bull Moose Theodore Roosevelt and former Princeton professor and New Jersey governor Woodrow Wilson. Stay tuned for Teddy Roosevelt's Third Term, Part 8. The History of North America podcast is a sweeping historical saga of the United States, Canada, and Mexico, from their deep origins to our present epoch. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this exciting, fascinating, epic journey through time, focusing on the compelling, wonderful, and tragic stories of North America's inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, environment, and geography. The History of North America podcast series is an incredible historical adventure that chronicles the thrilling, action-packed tale of a continent. I invite you to come along for the ride.